Hey friends, this is Caitlin Beatty. Roxy and I are delighted to be back for a special summer series of Saved by the City. And for this four-part series, we will really be talking about the topic of celebrity in the church. You might say that we have a critical view of the role that celebrity plays in the church. I recently wrote a book called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. And we thought we'd take this special summer series to draw out some of the themes that I really didn't get to delve into as much as I wanted to in the book. So for the next four episodes, join us as we dive into the topic of celebrity in the church. Roxy, does the phrase heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss ring a bell? It does indeed. But as many times as I've heard it, I still don't know what it actually means. I think it's a metaphor, and it is one of the juicier lyrics to appear in a worship song from John Mark McMillan's How He Loves, which has been covered a million times. It has, and I do remember when it came out. But it's so juicy that a lot of people who have covered it changed the words of that particular line to unforeseen kiss. I guess sloppy and wet was too sexual. For some people. But unforeseen is worse. It's like non consensual. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's maybe a whole different problem for a different day. From Religion News Service, this is a special summer series of Saved by the City. I'm Caitlin Beatty, and personally, I don't mind sloppy wet kisses. And I'm Roxy Stone, and I don't either as long as I can see him coming. Roxy, you mentioned this week that this is the Saved by the City celebrity edition. I really liked that. Mm. In our third episode of the celebrity edition, we wanted to talk about worship music. Yeah, growing up, Christian radio was like kind of edgy folk rock and, you know, a little bit of like jars of clay and DC talk. Mm-hmm. And as we've discussed, I think, on a previous episode, like, nowadays, it is dominated by worship music. It seems like one of the reasons for that is that worship music helps put megachurches into the mainstream of American Christianity when you think about Hillsong, which we've talked about, the Vineyard Movement, Bethel Church, which we'll hear about soon. It's made a lot of money, and it's also Mm -hmm. turned some of their worship artists into celebrities of sorts. Not just money. A sloppy mess of money. (laughs) So much money. Today we'll hear from someone who says he became Christian famous deep in this world of worship music connected to Bethel Church in California until the fame and pressure and expectations brought it all down. But before we hear from today's guest, Caitlin... Tell me what the most memorable experience in church you've had with music. Okay, two vivid memories. One is being on a youth group mission trip in Chicago and attending a worship service at Wheaton College. And we sang Friends Are Friends Forever, Mm -hmm. If the Lord's the Lord of Them, Michael Mm -hmm. W. Smith, one of the OGs. Mm -hmm. And my best friend at the time and I left the worship service and sang it together, like on the lawn to seal our bond. Oh, 
It was actually really sweet. We're not in contact. Um, not forever after all. <laughs> maybe in eternity it'll come back. But I also remember singing Shout to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Of course, the big Hillsong, Darlene, Jacques. I don't know how to say her mm-hmm. last name. Uh, a lot. Like at least a couple times so a month. Much. In church. This was circa 2000. And actually, this now that I think about it, it was this friend's mom who like lifted her arms at the chorus and waved them around and was having this breakthrough. And I was like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. But the raising of the arms became a thing in our church. I think Lord, I Lift Your Name on High was the one that brought that to our church. But yeah, similar. I mean, the, the song told you to literally lift. It did. It did. And so then we did. Right. Yeah. It's a very, very prescriptive song. So, yeah, just very intense emotions connected to those two memories. What about Mm -hmm. you? What is your most memorable? I mean, similar. College, especially, was just like such a time for worship music. Mm -hmm. And then I was part of a college church that had a really good band. And so it was kind of my first experience of that like worship music as concert feel, you know? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a sort of sense of ecstasy around it of this, like, you felt so close to God. It was such a formative time in my faith anyway. And then music's played such a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, one summer job I had, I think it was my, between my freshman and sophomore year, I was, like, painting houses. And I was, like, listening to the passion worship cd as i was painting houses and like that is a like a really distinct memory i have of like standing there in the mm-hmm. sun like painting and literally singing and worshiping god as i was like painting these houses it felt so important i think that was part of mm-hmm. maybe what the worship music gave every moment that i was listening to it even as i was painting a house which was like this moment matters you know so i had a weird experience This last weekend, I was with my family in Ohio and went to the same church that I grew up in. And the style of worship music is is not my current cup of tea. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I went in and, of course, my brain was very active in analyzing what was going on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, oh, when the swell happens, people raise their hands and blah, blah, blah. And then at some point, I was like, it's happening to me, too. I, I got a little teary. Yeah. And it was just so unexpected and just reminded me of even 20 years out from when I was first exposed to that kind of music, it can still like catch you. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) You know, like I think that music is meant to move us and can Mm -hmm. take us to a place of ecstasy and transcendence, of course. And it seems like we have to also be mindful of the other dynamics at play. And when we're talking about worship music, the dynamics of the fact that it is a business, Mm -hmm. you know, there is a, there's a profit dimension to this and it shapes our perceptions of the people leading the worship. Like, yeah. Are they the conduits of like a special, taking us to a special spiritual plane. I think about this a lot. Like, you know, I was recently for 
work reasons, watching some old Hillsong videos, you know, like Shout to the Lord and Oceans and so, and I and mm-hmm. watching several different iterations of those sung by different Hillsong bands or different Hillsong leaders. And watching like the camera zoom in on the face of like the lead worship singer and mm-hmm. how much emotion was on her face and then a, a different leader and you know on the same song but it was the same kind of it was like zoom in and there's like a lot of emotion happening on her face hands raised i wondered how real it was and could it be real every single time for that person <laughs> you know because it's like it was kind of during the same part of the song and you know and i and i'm not saying it wasn't but i'm also not saying it is like it's hard to know i, I mean worship Artists are not necessarily different than, you know, Beyonce gets pretty worked up at every one of her concerts too. Like, it's not like this is just unique to worship, but I think because it's worship and because it's like mm-hmm. trying to get a crowd to be like worshiping God, like vertically oriented, it's sort of, is this sincere? Yeah, we sense that we want it to be sincere because it feels mm-hmm. like this shouldn't just be a performance. This shouldn't just be a kind of, you have every beat down kind of planned in advance to elicit a response from the people who are there. It should, right. We feel like it should be something that actually really isn't about the person performing at all. Like, right. we kind of hope that they fade into the background because they're not the point. But right. the blending of worship and performance... I think makes us feel icky in ways that yeah. Beyonce performing, it's like, yeah, of course she's a performer and we all know she's a performer. That is what we have paid her to do. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Like the sort of blending of performance and worship. Like in what ways is that fine? And in what ways is that like, oh, maybe a little like problematic or icky. And like, when do, when do, when do we cross over into that? You know, because I think mm-hmm. like people have been, doing worship music for ages, you know? And I mean, in, in all kinds of different contexts. I mean, you can have a giant choir doing it and and I mm. am performing all over the world. I don't always think it's bad, but then I think there are moments where it crosses over into something that feels off in some way. Yeah, I have to think that some of them are aware and try to mitigate the kind of maybe a fakey feel and try to make it less about them. And then others are like, this is the role that I have to play. This is actually what works to Mm -hmm. engage people. Mm -hmm. And when I fall on my knees and start crying, it elicits such a huge emotional response from the crowd that actually the crowd is like, that's what they want from me. Like they want to be taken there. And I kind of have to go there to lead them there. Yeah. Because you you have to imagine a lot of these worship artists are like, I just got in a fight with my spouse. My kid is really sick. We're struggling or whatever. Like I'm, I'm not getting along with my bandmates. (laughs) Right. Or like we just drove 12 hours overnight on a bus and now I have to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure for a lot of people, like many performers, like once you're up there and once you're in it, like the music does something Mm -hmm. to you too. That's part of what is discipling like in the music but I think it's a complicated place to live in and like you I hope that there's space for a lot of these artists who I think 
have been pushed into a limelight and a celebrity-like lifestyle, I Mm. hope they're able to find space to wrestle with these questions. This seems like a good time to pivot to our guest who has wrestled with the tensions of performing worship and then being a performer and becoming a celebrity in his own right through the worship music industry. Our guest today set out in his career wanting to make it to the top. You know, I I in particular always knew what it was because I had a very clear picture in my head back when I was 21, 22, that I'm going to be Christian famous. <laughs> Somehow, someway, it's going to happen. I knew that. William Matthews is a singer-songwriter and recording artist who serves as music director of New Abbey Church in Los Angeles. We'll hear from William right after we give a sloppy wet kiss to the organization that makes Saved by the City possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And we'll be back soon with a brand new season of Saved by the City this fall. If you like what we're doing and want us to keep doing it, let us know by giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. As many of you know, my new book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church, is now out in the world. The book explores celebrity dynamics in the modern church and points a way forward to recover a vision of ordinary faithfulness. If you buy the book through Baker Bookhouse, you get 40% off plus free shipping. Visit bakerbookhouse.com to learn more. Today's guest is William Matthews, singer-songwriter, a fellow elder millennial, and the music director of New Abbey Church. Thanks for being here, William. It's so great to see you. Thank you for having me. We are going to get into your experience as a worship artist and a worship leader, as well as a recording artist connected to Bethel Church in Redding, California. But before we get there... I understand you did not grow up (laughs) in Bethel culture. You came to that world later. So take us back kind of before Bethel. Share with us a bit about your musical as well as your spiritual upbringing. Yeah. So I grew up in a denomination called Church of God. It's based out of Anderson, Indiana, not Cleveland, Tennessee, which is a distinction that very few people know and understand. <laughs> but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so I grew up in the uh, in a denomination that was actually pretty segregated. Uh, there was a, a white denomination, a black denomination, but they were technically one and the same. I would call it a holiness denomination that didn't have a lot of Pentecostal flair to it. I mean, my grandfather, for instance, he was a minister in this denomination. I have aunts and uncles that are ordained in this. So I didn't grow up with a lot of Pentecostal flair. It wasn't probably till later in life, uh, I would say my teenage years, that my parents particularly were more open to those experiences, Pentecostal experiences, prophetic experiences. They had a whole like shift in consciousness when I was a teenager around spirituality and, and religion and the Bible. And so I would say I kind of came of age in this type of uh, more charismatic understanding, but it was still pretty much rooted in a traditional uh, holiness Black church. When I turned 18, I kind of branched out and I decided to explore spiritually. And mainly I kind of found myself in white evangelical spaces. And Mm -hmm. so the concept of worship leading was was always an interesting one because we didn't call people worship leaders. 
I mean, I just grew up with choirs and you had, you know, maybe you had, a. I think, I think in the nineties we used the, the phrase praise team a lot. <laughs> You know the oh, praise yeah. Gosh, team. Oh yeah, that in a while. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, That's a throwback. <laughs> yeah, it was like a. It was just a smaller, condensed choir. You know, that was maybe. A, I guess it was worship focused a bit more um, than you know traditional choir songs. I felt like there was this burgeoning worship movement that was happening, particularly a prophetic movement. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself kind of attracted to those spaces. So from Morningstar, I ended up going and doing an internship in Kansas City with the House of Prayer. Ended up becoming on staff uh, at IHOP. Um, I was a prophetic singer. <laughs> and I sang with Misty Edwards. I used to be on Corey Asbury's team back before Corey was anybody, anything. <laughs> like we all yeah. kind of grew up around that same time and era. Same with United Pursuit and Laura Hackett mm. and who, I mean, everyone and their mom. So you were part of this burgeoning prophetic worship movement in kind of this generation of young dynamic artists recording their music and also playing their music in church. Yep. Kim Walker, I just I just watched her and how he loves us video on YouTube again to prepare for this interview. And I was like, wow. Oh, that's so funny. Back. Yeah. So we were all kind of in this uh youth movement that wasn't at the time, it was popular, but it was very underground. Like it wasn't mainstream Christian. Like worship music back in 2006, mm-hmm. right. seven was not what was primarily played on K Love, but we were all supporting each other and uh, doing each other's songs. So what were you doing at Bethel? You were, were you leading worship or were you mostly doing like songwriting? Maybe help our listeners understand like what is Bethel that makes it distinct in sort of culture and practice. We've talked about prophetic worship. Some people might not even know what that is, you know? Totally. So I don't know what Bethel currently is. I can only speak to my experience right. Right. when I was there, mm-hmm. which was forever ago. I left... <laughs> seven years ago. But I can say at the time, I was there when we started the label. I was the first uh, artist signed to the label, other than oh, Brian wow. and Jen Johnson. And we started a songwriters group. Me, Jeremy Riddle, Krista Black started a songwriters group. Um, and we would meet like Wednesdays and we would just write songs. And those songs became what was known as our, our first album, Be Lifted High. And uh, I have mm. two tracks on the album, Hope's Anthem, Deep Cries Out. And that's where the song One Thing Remains came from. That was like a spontaneous chorus that Brian had and we turned it into a song. Yeah. So we basically were just songwriting. And so I literally moved there to lead worship and yeah, Mm -hmm. the rest is history. So it was a pretty collaborative environment then you were all kind of working on songs together and, and then it was a label. Yeah, we started, we started a label that was with the particular focus of resourcing churches with singable songs. So it very much Mm -hmm. had the idea of how do we transmit you know, what was at the time, you know, what the Bethel culture, they called it, and how do we resource churches and really with the idea of how to influence churches with what we represented or what we believed. And and at the time, uh, Bethel was pretty fringe. And so there was always this perception of, well, how do we do the spontaneous prophetic thing, but also make it less fringy and less cringy even. <laughs> and I actually genuinely think one of the positive things that we did was we helped bring spontaneous prophetic worship to a new generation in a more palatable way. We tried to pioneer singable songs, only hits, <laughs> or songs that felt like hits, and songs that could you okay. know bring that thing that we were doing that was kind of fringy, but make it more mainstream and, and acceptable, really. So the music arm or expression of Bethel was seen as strategic for kind of 
bringing Bethel into the mainstream. The more that we license our worship music, the more that churches around the country are singing Bethel worship songs, the more people will gravitate to Bethel and understand Bethel in the in the way that I'm assuming like Hillsong would be a compa- a point of comparison, like what had happened for Hillsong. Yeah, and and it was it was multi-pronged too because at the time it was such a multi-sensory thing that you could be introduced to Bethel through Jesus culture, which was the youth movement, or you could be introduced to Bethel through Bill Johnson's books or Chris Valden's books, or you could be introduced mm-hmm. through what eventually became Bethel Music, or an evangelism team came to your church, or a missionary team came and taught your church how to do the prophetic or how to do prophetic evangelism, which was also a, a really popular thing at the time. Part of what we're exploring right now on the podcast is, you know, kind of how platforms, how these big sort of what you described, this almost this business or industry of Bethel, like this multi-pronged approach. Like we're kind of exploring like, are those kinds of platforms good for churches? Are they good for people's faith? So I'm wondering how you kind of experienced that side of it. Like did it did it feel like a business? Did it feel like an industry? Did it feel like it was genuine? How were you feeling about that even while you were there? You know, I, I in particular always knew what it was because I had a very clear picture in my head back when I was 21, 22, that I'm going to be Christian famous. <laughs> Somehow, some way, it's mm. going to happen. I knew that. You wanted to be Christian famous. Oh, yeah. Not only did I want to, I thought it was, you know, God's like plan for my life. You know, you just mm. feel like I'm going to be a teacher. I feel like not just because I want to, but also I feel like God has given me this gift to do this. You know, like I didn't go to the places that mm-hmm. would be considered mainstream Christian appropriate. I went to the pretty weird and subversive places, but I kind of had a pulse that that was the thing. Like that was, mm-hmm. that's what was up and coming. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of that. And so I went to the weird places. And so, yeah, so all those places, like I told you, Morningstar, IHOP, Bethel. I even interned, I forgot to tell you, I did intern for a year with uh, Teen Mania, Acquire the Fire back in 2002. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I yeah. I went twice. Hey, ATF. <laughs> um, I did the Honor Academy. I did the Honor Academy full on. And you did it all. I did Whoa. it. It was You were deep. Whew. Listen, that new Beyonce album, there's a, some lyric where, where she says, I finally found the other side. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel like mm. that in this season of my life uh, for a long time. Like, I have found the other side mm. of many mm. of these things that I was a part of throughout my entire 20s. And I'm just so blessed and mm-hmm. grateful to be here. But yeah, I always knew what it was. I knew that they were businesses. But it was quasi. It was like quasi-ministry, mm-hmm. quasi-entrepreneurship, quasi-industry. Uh, like, you know, we don't use this phrase, but I mean, the Christian music industry is an industrial complex at this point. Mm. I don't know if it's billions, but it's definitely a multi-hundred million dollar industry mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. there's a touring circuit and there are albums and there are t-shirts right. i was there i watched when worship music became the standard and the for the christian music industry because the pop artists in the christian space weren't selling anymore mm-hmm. so yeah we knew when we started the label i was signing contracts you know it was my first record deal um mm-hmm. i signed a contract with bethel music and mm-hmm. we had to sign contracts for publishing <laughs> like it was it was business for sure Wait, so you signed a contract with Bethel. So did you get the royalties or did Bethel get the royalties on your music? I mean, they were they were my record label and my publisher. And still to this day, you know, we have an agreement in terms of publishing splits and how much they get, how much I get. And that's still fun. That'll function for the rest of my life. The contract is forever. It's forever binding. 
Yeah, for as long as in in perpetuity, I guess, or you know, till I die, or thirty years after I die, whatever that is. I mean, not um, eternally. Maybe <laughs> Bethel would like that. I'm sure they like like a lot for of your things. earthly life. Yes, for my that's, earthly life, at intense. least I should go look at yes. that. But yeah, yeah, like when you're making Christian <laughs> music, you and you're signing publishing contracts, you are like it is a business contract. So you'd always wanted to be Christian famous, and then you were Christian famous, but that's not really what your life looks like anymore so talk about the trajectory and kind of why you've ended up where you are now which is leading worship at a smaller church in in la so part of that trajectory for me looked like taking a break because i was exhausted i was Mm. physically emotionally mentally exhausted i mean when you're doing back-to-back tours recording albums writing songs just the overall life of a christian celebrity y'all it was a lot (laughs) It was, it was so much demand and pressure and not just, I mean, it's one thing if you're just doing a, a rehearse thing every night, we were doing more than just rehearsals. We were doing like live improvisational, like the energy was just unmatched. What we were creating in those moments was a lot. And I actually came to the end of myself physically. My body started breaking down um, emotionally, mentally. I just, I was in the mud. And so I had to just take a season away and stop. And actually that season lasted for almost six years. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it was because mm-hmm. I ran hard for like 15 years. And I realized that I was, I was mm-hmm. traveling the world. I was, you know, doing over 100,000 miles a year, you know, just everywhere. And I couldn't do it anymore. I, I totally flatlined. A lot of it coincided with my own personal spiritual deconstruction, which looked a lot like, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing that much church, you know, and you're traveling the world and you're, you're in everybody's churches. And for me, being a black worship leader, I was, I was going places where I would often get told, hey, you're the first black person we've ever had come and either speak or lead worship. Like that was very wow. common for me to be told that, especially at the time when I was kind of at my height. Like there weren't a lot of black worship leaders in the, the white evangelical space. You know, you were either gospel artists or you you didn't exist. <laughs> like there wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. Israel Houghton was probably the only person who could kind of cross back and forth at the time. Um, but even mm-hmm. like Kirk Franklin, like like white Christians weren't yeah. really listening to Kirk Franklin except for a song or two. You know, like there those worlds were really divided, and they've they've come together a lot more in the last eight years or so. But when I was doing it, it, it wasn't. So I was just exhausted from white people. <laughs> that was just a lot of it. it. Was just dealing with white people was a was so much. And so many microaggressions. I told a friend of mine uh, recently, I said, it felt like death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm. It was, mm-hmm. I just, and I eventually just bled out. I, I didn't have it in me anymore. And so, yeah, my spiritual deconstruction looked a lot of like questioning white supremacy, questioning how that had an impact on my theology, what I believed about mm-hmm. God. Was God the way that white evangelicals have framed him to be, particularly for me being in these settings? Like, I was not just leading worship, but I was also spiritually receiving from so many of these places around the world right? and sitting in sermons. And I was like, I don't know if I agree with that. There started to become very clear, like, red flags for me around theology, around money. Also, too, you know, in this network Christian space, a lot of it's like, okay, we're going to get you to come to the conference because you can pull this person so we can raise this money so we can do this thing. And it was so transactional to the point where, like I said, I knew that it was all business, but at some point it was hard for me to kind of detangle business from ministry, from family relationships or friendship relationships. Mm -hmm. They all became so Mm -hmm. intertwined that became very unhealthy for me because I didn't know who my real Mm -hmm. friends were. Because if I wasn't able to do for them, 
you know, or wasn't able to bring in the right amount of crowd or, you know, sing the prophetic song that was going to break open the atmosphere, then am I actually valuable in this space? And so, yeah, when my body started breaking down, um, I, I put a pause to everything and I stopped and I said, no more, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And that was, it was one of the hardest decisions I ever did, had to make, but it was the healthiest decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like your body was like telling you this is not sustainable. This is, this is such an overused word, but this is a toxic environment for you. You cannot thrive in this environment because of the box that you're being put into because of racial microaggressions, because of the kind of white evangelical theological strictures. Just this does not allow me to be my authentic self and to thrive as my authentic self. Yeah. If I can't bring my whole self to the table, then I'm not sure I want to be at that table. Right. I now know what I need to feel full, to feel whole, to feel appreciated and valued. And that now looks a certain way. And so in a lot of ways, I had to have conversations with folks to be like, hey, I feel like for a long time, I just kind of went along with certain things and I'm actually not okay with those things. And that's changed for me. Hey, and (laughs) I even went to the extent of even saying to certain individuals at times, hey, I'm actually sorry. I'm sorry that I changed because I did kind of go along with that. I did make you feel like that was okay that we were doing X, Y, and Z, or we were singing that song or we were writing that hook or whatever. And I actually don't know if I agree with that. You know? Yeah, it's it's weird to f- look back and realize that you participated and in some sense perpetuated something that you would later see to be very unhealthy and damaging to other yeah. people. Oh, very. And I would see it. Like, I would lead worship, you know, I could be in Denver or New York or wherever. And I just look at the crowd and I would see people's faces. I remember that, like, my last year touring a lot. And I would see people's faces and I would see the desperation and the hunger, not for God, but just for something to help them make sense of their lives, you know? And it was like, what we're offering here isn't the whole picture. Mm. It isn't the thing that actually you might need. I mean, I would look at the crowd and see people that, that to me looked and felt queer and just go, oh, like, are we actually really serving you? Are you yeah. really being brought into wholeness here? Or are we maybe perpetuating a a lie in your life or a false idea of God or a false idea of, you know, what you need from God? And, and that desperation, and, you know, for some of those people, it could look like I need this worship service to really inspire me to help me stay in the closet, you know? Mm-hmm. And things like that where it's like people are living in mental, emotional, spiritual agony trying to fit into a box that they maybe don't quite fit in. Right. Mm-hmm. It It bothered me. Because I, I felt like hmm. music has the capacity to lift people, to inspire people, to do some incredible things. But I think music ultimately should help people face reality and not deny reality. Mm. Or to face their bodies and not run from their bodies. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes with worship music, and, and I was guilty of this, and, and, and some of this isn't bad. So when I say I'm guilty, I mean it in a very collective uh, uh, way, like... Music puts people into lower states of consciousness. It puts people into trances. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and when people are in trances, you can suggest certain ideas that can feel true and maybe are not true. And mm-hmm. sometimes I think in worship music, we create this disembodied experience. So where people feel like they can leave their bodies because <laughs> being mm-hmm. in their body sucks, right? Like 
if you feel mm. a lot of lust or if you feel a lot of anger, or if you feel a lot of trauma, pain, whatever, and you just want to escape, that can feel nice. You know, I listen to Beyonce's record to escape, <laughs> you know, but also, <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, a lot of that music is actually, hey, get into your body, like get into your body, yeah. mm-hmm. where I felt like charismatic music oftentimes was like, escape your body, leave your body for this mm-hmm. heavenly realm up here and we'll take you there. We'll lift mm-hmm. you up there. You know, but then once you're back in your body after the altar call, after you've cried the tears, after you've laid out and laughed and been prayed for and whatever, and you still have that thing that won't go away, you know, and then then it becomes addictive. And then I felt like people were like addicted to worship music and became addicted mm-hmm. to what they mm-hmm. call it, addicted to the presence right. of God. But really, it's an addiction to this escapism. Yeah. Like there are people mm. out there who worship worship music. And right. and what That's that brings to them, it yeah, is. and and not what it actually, yeah, and not the transformative part that music can create for you, but the addictive part of like, and so for me leaving, I had to leave because I realized I was addicted too. Ah, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess like a common critique of charismatic worship music would be like, oh, you're just seeking an emotional high, and like on one hand, I don't blame anybody for. Maybe yeah. they're going some going yeah. through something really difficult. They want to escape through a kind of high. And also what happens after the worship? Like you have to return to the reality of your life at some point. And God is no less there than God is in a worship service. Oh yeah. So but, but I hear you about the the escapist element of it. I became addicted to the high of live performance. My body was used to like being in arena stages or like, Mm -hmm. you know, having massive speakers and like, and just being immersed in this music nonstop. And so there was the high of like, and also the attention high that you get like in those moments. Like I had to like go cold turkey (laughs) and like I went through Mm -hmm. actual withdrawals and I felt like it took me years. I had to, there was a, a, a long, I mean, years where I just didn't even listen to worship music. Yeah. I couldn't be in a worship service. It would not just trigger me. I felt, I felt traumatized. Also, because in, in those spaces is a type of forced vulnerability. And mm-hmm. as a worship leader, I, I felt like to be a good yeah. worship leader, I had to be vulnerable on a stage. Yeah, I feel like I always see that on people. stage. Yeah. And the most anointed worship leaders are the most vulnerable. And we could say that even and with- And I always you know, wonder it, if it's real. Exactly. I, you know, and, I mean, we're, we're cynical journalists, so that doesn't turn <laughs> off when we're in church. It's yeah. very hard to turn off. Oh, listen, there are but, a lot of a lot of people that do performative tenderness. Uh, Jamie Lee French actually gave me that word. I, I'll shout her out for that. There's, there are worship leaders who really can perform uh, emotional vulnerability in the same way that you, maybe you, you, we all did in church to some level, right? In a small group mm-hmm. or in a prayer line. and, and we, So I would walk in the church and feel emotionally unsafe because mm-hmm. I could pour out my heart, but that didn't mean people really knew me. They would often have... Mm-hmm so many preconceptions because for Christian music audiences, you're a confirmation of their belief system. Mm. So people used me in their own personal prayer time through CDs and streaming and YouTube to have these encounters with God where God would tell them certain things Mm -hmm. and give them revelations. And then they would just naturally and instinctually think that you somehow represent that. So there's even an idolatry Mm -hmm. thing of like people are holding you up as some representative of their evangelical faith, whatever that wow. revelation mm-hmm. is. And it's unhealthy because then I realized yeah. I'm not being viewed as a whole person. 
um, in my context, mm. with my history and my story, I'm being consumed in a consumeristic environment. <laughs> I'm being mm-hmm. like reduced mm-hmm. to a, a a fix for you, like like I said, a drug for you to to feel a type of way to escape or to hear a word from God. And I didn't want any of that, and so I, I literally like ran mm-hmm. the other direction because um, mm-hmm. the very thing I said that I wanted once I got it, I was like, oh, mm. oh, yeah, that cost is- a lot. Yeah. It cost my soul, hmm. and I at yeah. some point I hmm. said I I needed my soul back, um, especially hmm. being black and white spaces. So how did you end up back in the space of worship leading, and how are you approaching it differently now so that it doesn't cost you your soul again? Yeah, so I had very specific requests <laughs> to God, so to speak. I said if I ever hmm. were to do this again, I'd want to do it in a space that felt safe that was inclusive and inclusivity for me looked like no matter who you are what your gender race or sexual orientation is you were considered a child of god Mm -hmm. and i also needed it to be in a as much as possible non-hierarchical environment Mm -hmm. which is pretty much me basically saying i had to leave evangelicalism because i'm just you're Mm -hmm. never going to get that inside of uh evangelicalism so I went for a very non-traditional type church that is not evangelical in theology and barely in practice. We, you know, still have like a service, you know, and some of those like same things. And New Abbey, which is a, the church that I'm the, the music director at, is that space. And it's here in Los Angeles. And I knew the community. I trusted uh, the pastor. Yeah, I didn't want to be in a space that triggered me in that way. And so it's a journey. Worship music still... Like I can have a couple really good Sundays and then I'll literally pull up that next Sunday and then something will just trigger me. I remember something, something someone said to me 10 years ago that really (laughs) hurt me. And then I'm like walking into the space like, oh God, all right. Okay. All right. How do I, how do I now have to process this before I have to sing, you know? And Hmm. so, yeah, it's a journey for me. Uh, And I actually intermingle a lot of pop music as well with worship songs. I really, that's helped me a ton to not have the secular sacred divide and to really do mm-hmm. treat music as all sacred um, music that I feel is inspirational or speaks to the heart or the human mm. experience. And so that's been a fun journey. Um, some people in our congregation don't always like it, but <laughs> even for a progressive, do you inclusive mean Beyonce? Church, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've done a halo a few times. Um, all right. Yeah. Oh, that's um, really, <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's a good song. And it but then works. All these like white evangelicals are going to hear this be like, we should incorporate Beyonce to are. attract the young people. Oh God. <laughs> <But> I would... <laughs> yeah. I can't speak to anybody like, else doing anything. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. No, it has to feel authentic to you and to your journey. Uh, I think music as a whole has to do that. And I'm lucky enough to have written great worship tunes. I still will do some of them, not all of them. Because all mm-hmm. of them don't resonate with me anymore, but some of them still do. Mm-hmm. And I so I'm lucky enough to do songs. I'm like, I know where I, how I wrote this and what place it came from. And I can trust that journey and process. So I, I'm lucky enough to be able to have a catalog of music that I can pull from that is very authentic to me. Not everybody has that, right? Like, so I don't want to tell anyone to do Beyonce now. Like, that's the new standard of worship. But whatever feels... What's that scripture where it says, whatever is good, right, lovely, think on these things. That's what I feel in regards to music now in in this church is let's dwell on things that uplift us 
no matter what they are. And, and they don't have to talk about blood sacrifice <laughs> to do that. And, you know, <laughs> which is a very, you know, strong tenet of evangelicalism is it's yeah. let's talk about killing the babies or at least baby Jesus. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, yeah, William, for joining us and for for. I want to say being vulnerable with your story, but it was not performative vulnerability. Oh. It felt like real vulnerability. So yeah, thank you for your, for your time and your insights. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you too. And you know, I love myself some cynical journalists, so I love both of you and both of your works and uh, keep going. One of the things that stood out to me in hearing William's story was how you might think that it's the dream come true to become Christian famous. Mm-hmm. And then once you get there and once it happens, it's actually terrible <laughs> because that world and kind of connecting your faith and spirituality to your career and to mm-hmm. a public persona can make you feel like I can't be authentic. I can't really be who I am. And I can't really say what I believe or maybe what I'm questioning because I'm expected to play a specific role to keep everything going. Yeah. I am not going to forget for a long time that image he gave us of later in his career being on stages singing and looking out in an audience and seeing people hungry for the worship who he knew were queer or otherwise hurting inside that they were like looking for something from the church to fix whatever they believed was a problem in them and him standing up there being like I don't know if I feel good giving you this thing mm-hmm. that I think is actually hurting you and is maybe a thing I don't even believe anymore in the ways that I'm being asked to present it mm-hmm. that tension that he was living with at that time it just really broke my heart for that past version of him and and made me really think about what we ask of, you know, mm-hmm. worship leaders who are in some ways representatives of an institution that they have tied their lives to, but they're also changing people as well, you know, and they're not in mm-hmm. the same way like a pastor. Like there's ways that they maybe can't express themselves and they're like changing journey in the same way because they're asked to like, sing the same songs every week. Mm. Yeah, they kind of have to defer to or prop up the central mm-hmm. theology or teaching from the main people, mm-hmm. right? And I imagine that there are probably some churches that have an a more open posture mm-hmm. <laughs> than the one that William was connected to who could hold space for that. Right. And then there are others who feel like this is too risky what if this comes out? Like, what if, you know, our our worship leader is questioning one of our central teachings? What's going to happen? There's going to be controversy and mm-hmm. blowback. And that's where you see Christian institutions acting to p- protect themselves and protect almost an image and a brand, mm-hmm. even at the expense of people being cast out or being treated like pariahs or being made to pay the price in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And that feels, just to make it really clear, that feels like not a Christian way to treat people. Right. You know, he talked a lot about sort of 
the microaggressions that he was encountering as a black man in those spaces um, that mm-hmm. were primarily white. I think about this a lot because I've been to a lot of evangelical churches over the years with cool bands and my church too. Like there's often more people of color in the band than in the pews. And Mm -hmm. I wonder about that a lot of this sense of, you know, tokenizing representation by putting it on stage, but putting, putting those people on stage in a place where they're singing the songs given to them expected like a certain, you know, it's not necessarily that they have a voice as much as they're being, you know, potentially used as representative. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that is maybe all too common that we really need to to deal with. Right. It's the difference between a kind of glossy diversity Mm -hmm. and a true multiracial space where there is actual power sharing at the level of leadership, at the level of teaching and theology. And of culture setting, you know, for the church too. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't just feel like a white cultural space. And it seems like some Christians don't even know they're in a white cultural space. (laughs) And if you and if you bring that up, they're like, "Well, why do you? Why are you bringing race into this?" Right, right. I think but that's a topic for I another was gonna episode. Say, I was perhaps. just going to say that. I feel like we've stumbled on a future podcast episode, so stay tuned, folks. You know, William was very clear that he there's still traumatic elements that he's working through and processing. But I am glad that he got out of that world for his own sake because it it didn't seem like a place where he could actually thrive as William Matthews. Like it was doing something to his person. Absolutely. And also amazed like that he's, he's found a healthy way to be at peace doing that again, which Mm -hmm. I think is remarkable and difficult Mm -hmm. to, to take that journey. So one thing that Chuck said at the end of our conversation last week is that he advises kind of like fallen pastors to take at least 10 yes. years out of the spotlight, yes. <laughs> which I was like, I bet not a lot of pastors sign up for that. You know? I know. Yeah. I mean, you, it's a whole different life. And I mean, I think that's a really difficult ask, but also when we really think about what it is to be disciples of Christ and when we really think about what it is to be like, desiring to sort of have, as Eugene Peterson said, like this long obedience in the same direction, like 10 years Mm. is a long time and also not that long in terms of like Mm -hmm. a lifetime and the work it takes to become more Christ-like. I say we let Eugene Peterson have the last word on this episode. You can't get better than that. That's true. Although we have a pretty great voice speaking words to us next week. (laughs) We're not going to reveal to our listeners yet who it is, but this person has a lot of experience with stewarding a platform and trying to live authentically within Christian celebrity. You might say she's had as much as, if not more experience navigating the spotlight than even Eugene Peterson. And she also apparently makes a mean queso dip, which I think about at least once a week. We did not get to have any queso on the episode. I guess we just have to um, head south. We'll tune in next week. 
Today by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Wyndham. Chaz Russo put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening.